0: and intellectuals of this time. The innovative minds. The intelligentsia. Those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk-takers. The revolutionaries. Those living apart from this big unrest. Those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. Where we will journey beyond the horizon and find the artist living on the edge going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into The Bohemian Beat. I'm ready with you until the end of the hour with another adventure into the theatre of your mind. Today we will begin with a track based on a medieval German poem by the troubadour von Herheim. Poem, Vogel fluke or flying poem, belongs to the genre of poetry known as Lugen lied or Lying Song, by which the last stanza negates the statements of the previous lines. I will read out the English translation. I always feel as if I'm flying above the world, which means everything to me. Wherever I see, wherever I look, I see a lot of good. However far it is, I want it to be close to me. Strong and fast, powerful, noble and free is my spirit. That is why I can run so fast. No animal in the forest can escape me. That is all a lie. I am as heavy as lead. Medieval band Quantel with Vogel Fluke from their fourth studio album Ozymandias. Concept album based on the poem Ozymandias by English romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, published in 1818. Shelley began writing the poem soon after the announcement that the British Museum had acquired a large fragment of a statue of Ramses II from 1300 BC. In antiquity, Ozymandias was an alternative name for the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. The central theme of the poem Ozymandias is contrasting the inevitable decline of all leaders and of the empires they build with their obsession for power.
1: Ozymandias. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away.
0: across the Community Radio Network. We just heard The Church with Pharaoh and before that Ozymandias, a poem by English Romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley. In 1814, while Shelley was married, he met the young Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin and begins one of the most famous literary romances of all time. Mary was the daughter of the philosophical radical William Godwin and acclaimed feminist Mary Wollstonecraft. This next piece is a letter from Percy Bysshe Shelley to Mary.
2: September 5, 1814. My beloved, I do not know whether these transient meetings produce not as much pain as pleasure. What have I said? I do not mean it. I will not forget the sweet moments when I saw your eyes, the divine rapture of the few and fleeting kisses. Yet indeed, this must cease. Indeed, we must not part thus wretchedly to meet amidst the comfortless tumult of business. To part, I know not how. Well, dearest love, tomorrow. Tomorrow night, that eternal clock Oh, that I could fright the steeds of lazy-paced time. I do not think that I am less impatient now than formerly to repossess, to entirely engross my own treasured love. It seems so unworthy a cause for the slightest separation. I could reconcile it to my own feelings to go to prison, if they would cease to persecute us with interruptions. I must return. Your thoughts alone can waken mine to energy. My mind, without yours, is dead and cold as the dark midnight river when the moon is down. It seems as if you alone could shield me from impurity and vice. If I were absent from you long, I should shudder with horror at myself. My understanding becomes undisciplined without you. How divinely sweet a task it is to imitate each other's excellences, and each moment to become wiser in this surpassing love, so that, constituting but one being, all real knowledge may be comprised in the maxim, know thyself, with infinitely more justice than in its narrow and common application. Your affectionate Percy Shelley.
0: Smith with Lifetime. And before that, David Niven reading a letter by Percy B. Shelley to Mary Godwin. Percy and Mary were married in 1816, the year they famously spent a summer with Lord Byron, John Polidori and Claire Claremont near Geneva. The weather was consistently too cold and dreary. So the group retired indoors while sitting around a log file in Byron's villa. The company amused themselves by reading German ghost stories when Byron proposed a competition to see who could write the best horror story. After thinking for days, Mary dreamt about a scientist who created life and was horrified by what he had made. That dream later evolved into Frankenstein. The following piece is an excerpt from a dramatized version of Frankenstein.
3: The wind howling outside my lonely home is my only companion. All else is quiet here as I sit by my window in the parlor writing this document for the scientific world. Be warned, you doctors and scientists who come after me. Be warned that man must not experiment with the secrets of life. My experiences started in the University of Manchester, where I was studying natural history. It was after class, May 22nd, 1818, that Professor Waldman, my close dear friend Henry Clerval, and myself were in the laboratory of the university. Victor Frankenstein, your persistence
4: amazes me. Someday I shall sit at your feet and allow you to teach me.
3: Thank you, Professor Wallman. But the whole subject of the structure of man has always been too clouded in mysticism. Well, frankly, Victor, I prefer mysticism. That's because you're a mystic, Henry. Why,
4: Henry's no more a mystic than I am. He just loves to avoid arduous work. Oh, translating that means I'm lazy, eh, Professor? If you prefer to put it that way. I'd rather think of you as a student whose nervous structure does not take kindly to
3: natural history. <laughs> the professor's kinder to you than you are to yourself, Henry. Well, if I worked as hard as you do, Victor, I should probably wear that same gaunt, sleepless look that you carry about. Well, my experiment will be finished tonight. And then I'll manage the eight hours sleep that other men manage. The secret experiment will be finished tonight, huh? Well, then will you tell us just exactly what you're doing in the basement at home? I'll tell the entire world. As a matter of fact, I... I stayed after class this afternoon, Professor Wallman, to ask you to join me this evening in the basement of our place to watch the completion of my work. Oh. Well, how about me? I don't think I dare invite more than one, Henry. And the professor is more interested in this type of procedure than, than you are.
4: I shall be delighted,
3: Victor. Just the best friend who never knows what's going on in his own home, that's all. It's not that, Henry. But I thought you'd entertain Elizabeth for me, while the professor and I were at work. Entertaining Elizabeth would be a delightful favor, old boy. You know, I think you trust me too much with her. Have you ever met Victor's fiancée, Professor Waldman? She's one of the most charming... Yes, Elizabeth was one of the most charming, beautiful women I'd ever known. I had been in love with her from childhood, but even my love for Elizabeth couldn't dim my passionate zeal for the work I was doing. It was eight o'clock that evening. Henry, Elizabeth, and I were seated in the parlor. Elizabeth was saying...
5: I'll be so glad, Victor, darling, when all this is over. If you only knew how tired you look.
3: The minute my work is done, successfully or unsuccessfully... I promise you, Elizabeth, we'll be married in and off to Switzerland before Henry has time to lock up this place. But first we find out about the secret in the basement. Henry's being eaten up by curiosity. I
4: don't blame him. I'm suffering pangs of what's it all about, too.
3: Well, you'll both know soon. I wonder where Professor Wallman is. He's late. He'll be here soon, Victor. Stop pacing the floor, sweetheart. I think I'll start my work downstairs. Send the professor down when he arrives, will you, darling?
4: We'll come down ourselves and take a look around. Or will I turn
6: into a pillar of salt for peeking?
3: Nobody ever turned into a pillar of salt for peeking, Beth. It was for looking back. Oh, nothing like a good practical working knowledge of the Bible for scientific experiments. <laughs> Starts the night off right. Yes, I thought jokingly of that paragraph from the Bible then. And she was turned into a pillar of salt. But what about a man who looks back? There is no ready reference for him or for me. I went downstairs to my laboratory at a little past eight, opened the door, and started to tinker around to pass the time more quickly. My every sense was alive, taut, waiting, with the sense of what was to come. I heard a knock on the side door, which led me from my laboratory directly into the forest which bordered Manchester. I looked out and... Good evening, Victor. Oh, did
4: Elizabeth tell you to come down this way, Professor? No, I found the entrance to your laboratory quite by myself. I help you with your coat, sir? No, no, no. You proceed with your work. Nothing like trivialities to annoy a scientist at work.
3: (sighs) There we are. Follow me, Professor, into the back room, and you'll see for yourself what this is all about. Well, I feel that I'm in
4: for a most exhilarating evening. I wish I had more students fashioned in your mold, Victor.
3: Well, Professor...
4: Here is my. Why, what's
3: this? A full-sized replica of a man? Yes, only he isn't full-sized. He's fashioned on a grander scale. I should say this creature standing up would be approximately eight feet, two inches tall.
4: Well, you should have been an artist, Victor. He's a perfect reproduction. What did you make him out of? Wood? Clay?
3: Animal flesh. Flesh? Feel him. Oh, feels like the body of a dead man. Or the body of a man who hasn't as yet been brought to life. This body is complete in every detail. Heart, lungs, teeth. Even the fine nervous system. It's interesting.
4: Yes, interesting. How about the brain cells? Yes, adult brain cells.
3: I think he's quite handsome, don't you? Well, each
4: man to his own taste. He's the best reproduction of a man I've ever seen. But actually, his face is hideous. As a plastic surgeon, my dear Victor, I'm afraid I can't give you much credit. Well,
3: what do you intend to do with this hulk? You see this fluid here in the test tube? Yes. I filled the hypodermic needle with it. And now, now I'm going to inject the full eight ounces into the vein, directly above his heart. But why? Watch. You see, Professor, quite by accident, I stumbled on the secret of life. I've been bringing small, one cell creatures to life for quite some time. The secret of life? Within 30 seconds. After this injection, this creature will live. You're trying to play a god, Victor. It's heresy. It's science. I'm making a new race, by far finer than the present one. Larger in structure, stronger, heavier, healthier. A race able to live on nuts and berries. ...with a greater capacity for feeling. Victor, for the love
4: of heaven, don't go through with this experiment. No man living has the right to tamper with the secret of life. You've created a monster on that floor. You've no idea what will happen if you go through with this. Watch, Professor. The injection. I only hope and pray this is a failure.
3: It can't be. His eyes moved. Watch him, Professor. He's like a baby, first realizing life. His hands touch the floor. His eyes are trying to focus on the world around him. He's hideous. Yes, he's hideous. I made the skin too much like parchment, I'm afraid. Victor, get rid of that monster. Uh, He's trying uh, to
4: stand up. If that mind which you've created is a twisted one, have you any idea what kind of horror you've let loose in England? As a humanitarian, I feel it my Christian duty to do this now. Put that knife down, Professor. No, Uh, I can't let... uh, Oh, uh, he's got me in the clutch of his hand. uh, Command him to stop this picture. uh, Stop fighting him, uh, Professor. He's frightened. uh, He has the the, same reactions as a child. uh, Grabs and won't let uh, loose. Let
3: me go, monster. uh, Stop. Don't go out uh, that door. uh, Put the Professor down. Don't go out that door.
6: A point point
0: is a bohemian beat and we just heard Emily Autumn with Dead Is A New Alive and before that an excerpt from Frankenstein by Mary Shelley performed by the Weird Circle. Frankenstein was conceived during 1816 the year which became known as the Year Without Summer where strange weather and an inexplicable darkness caused record cold temperatures across Europe. Of course No one knew that the darkness was caused by the volcanic ash spewing from the eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. There was much hysteria across Europe. Newspapers such as the London Chronicle reported on the panic. Scientists predicted that the sun would go out on July 18th, causing riots, suicides and religious fervour all across Europe. It was in this foreboding gloom that Lord Byron wrote his poem, Darkness.
7: Darkness. I had a dream, which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went, and came and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation, and all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light and they did live by watch-fires, and the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell, were burnt for beacons. Cities were consumed, and men were gathered round their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes and their mountain torch. A fearful hope was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, But hour by hour they fell and faded, and the crackling trunks extinguished with a crash, and all was black. The brows of men by the despairing light wore an unearthly aspect, as by fits the flashes fell upon them. Some lay down and hid their eyes and wept, and some did rest their chins upon their clenched hands and smiled, and others hurried to and fro and fed their funeral piles with fuel, and looked up with mad disquietude on the dull sky, the pall of a past world. And then again, with curses, cast them down upon the dust, and gnashed their teeth and howled. The wild birds, shrieked and terrified, did flutter on the ground, and flap their useless wings. The wildest brutes came tame and tremulous, and vipers crawled and twined themselves among the multitude, hissing but stingless. They were slain for food and war, which for a moment was no more. Did glut himself again, a meal was bought with blood, And each sate sullenly apart, gorging himself in gloom. No love was left, all earth was but one thought, And that was death, immediate and inglorious, And the pang of famine fed upon all entrails. Men died, and their bones were tombless as their flesh. The meagre by the meagre were devoured, Even dogs assailed their masters, all save one, and he was faithful to a corpse, and kept the birds and beasts and famished men at bay, till hunger clung them, or the dropping dead lured their lank jaws. Himself sought out no food, but with a piteous and perpetual moan, and a quick desolate cry, licking the hand which answered not with a caress, he died. The crowd was famished by degrees but two of an enormous city did survive, and they were enemies. They met beside the dying embers of an altar place where had been heaped a mass of holy things for an unholy usage. They raked up, and shivering, scraped with their cold skeleton hands the feeble ashes, and their feeble breath blew for a little life and made a flame which was a mockery. Then they lifted up their eyes as it grew lighter and beheld each other's aspects, saw and shrieked, and died, even of their mutual hideousness they died, unknowing who he was upon whose brow famine had written fiend. The world was void, the populous and the powerful was a lump, seasonless, herbless, treeless, manless, lifeless, a lump of death, a chaos of hard clay. The rivers, lakes, and ocean all stood still and nothing stirred within their silent depths. Ships, sailorless, lay rotting on the sea, and their masts fell down piecemeal. As they dropped, they slept on the abyss without a surge. The waves were dead. The tides were in their grave. The moon, their mistress, had expired before. The winds were withered in the stagnant air, and the clouds perished. Darkness had no need of aid from them. She was the universe.
0: is the bohemian beat and we just heard Sisters of Mercy with Black Planet. And before that darkness, a poem by Lord Byron. From 1816, the year without summer, inside Villa Diodati by Lake Geneva, where Frankenstein and the vampire were conceived, to 2016, inside a library at the most easterly point of Australia. A group of bohemians gathered to research and explore poetry and performance. When Adair, similar to Byron's, inspired acclaimed producer Paul Goodwin to turn his hand to a radio play. And with the sport of Byron Bay SAE, we were able to give life to a story, grooming. So, in a police station in the little town of Stokersvale, population 8,000, Nobody expected anything unusual to happen. Just your run-of-the-mill mix of traffic infringements, domestic violence and patty-larceny. Then the call came. Something strange was happening in the graveyard. Mm, I've told you all I know.
8: So, let's go through it again.
0: Where would you want to start?
8: Right at the beginning.
0: I was on my way to buy some food.
8: Yes, you told me that before, but that's not what I mean by the beginning.
6: What do you mean? God. You want to start with
8: God? Hang on. Interview suspended, 3.27 p.m.
9: Getting anywhere?
8: It's unbelievable. What don't you believe? She doesn't even seem
2: to know. Hey, Jonesy, did she spill her guts? Hang on. Sarge? Spit it out. Sarge, you won't believe this woman's story. Come on, Constable. Don't tell me you've forgotten all your training at the first sight of a great pair of...
8: Sergeant, it's nothing to do with... So what's the problem? She doesn't
2: seem to have any sense of... The meaning of life. Her past. I don't care about her past. All I want to know is what was she doing trying to hide a dead... No, I mean, that's it. She doesn't seem to remember anything. And she's the first suspect in history to claim that, I suppose. Constable, go back in there and do your job, please. Sorry, Sarge. And don't listen to Mavis.
9: What did he say?
8: Not to listen to you.
9: Typical. Listen, did she actually say he was her boyfriend or was it her partner?
8: Mavis, don't start.
9: I'm going to speak to Lawson.
8: I don't need you to. I'm
9: just joking. Go on then, see how you go with her this time.
8: Interview resumed at 3.31pm. So, you said the reason you went to the shop was to get food for your partner.
6: No, that's not what
8: I said. Well, what did you say? I said food for him. But who is he? What is his name? You asked me that before. Yes. And do you remember what you said? I called him... Yes?
2: I-, I called him... Yes? Darling. Darling? Yes.
8: But that's not a name, it's
0: just... See? That. Right there. I don't think he should have let her get away with- Yeah,
2: well that's easy to say, but what should he have done?
0: Well, Senior Constable Brady thinks- Oh,
2: not Mavis again. She goes on with all that crap about how females relate to each other through intuition
0: and- you think that's crap, do you, Sergeant?
2: Uh, Inspector, can we just listen to the tape?
8: Something people say to each other. A term of endearment. Well, that's what I called him. And what did he call you? Darling, we need to get some
9: food. You mean, she reckons they didn't know each other's names?
8: That's what she's saying. It's like she has no memory. No ID, no fixed address, no...
9: You mean total amnesia? Like she doesn't even know who she is?
8: It's as if she just popped up in that graveyard. Out of nowhere. Maybe we'll have to take her back there. I don't know. Ever since we lived there, I suppose. And he did all the cooking? He was teaching me how to.
0: You better do something, Sergeant. If this male she's talking about really exists, he sounds dangerous to me. And
2: if he doesn't, what if she just decided all by herself to
0: go wandering about St. Benedict's church grounds at midnight? Yes. No, no, it's all too Gothic.
2: You mean like Dracula? I'd want to drink your blood.
0: What? You know,
2: Count Dracula, I want to drink your blood.
0: He didn't say that. Yeah, he did. I
2: want to drink...
0: Frank, he did not. Have you actually read the book?
2: Well, no, but...
0: Anyway, that's not what I meant by Gothic. What did you mean? Well, one interpretation is the duality of fear and desire from the female perspective...
2: Excuse me for not going to university.
8: Sarge, we'll have to... Oh, Inspector Campbell.
0: Constable Jones, are you getting anywhere?
8: Oh well, I I was just about to say, Sergeant, we need to take the suspect back to the crime scene. We? Senior Constable Brady and I. When? Now. So, do you remember coming up this street? Yes. So, what sort of car were you traveling in? Like this one. A police car? You mean a what? Yes. And he was driving, you said? Yes. And is this the place where he parked? I think so. Over there near the... Near the big stone wall you mean? Are they the gates you went in? Yes. Wait there a moment. I'll help you get out. These are very uncomfortable on my wrists. Sorry, but we have to. VKG Stoker 4. Copy Stoker 4. Parking near southern entrance. Transferring suspects. Switching to mobile. Roger VKG. So, am I understanding this right? You're saying he used to buy everything. You never went out? Anywhere? He said he didn't want me bothering. Are you seriously asking me to believe? What about the clothes you're wearing? Are you saying you don't remember buying them?
0: They were always just... I don't... That's it. He's created her whole personality. He's a erased. What? sociopaths will do anything to... VKG, Stoker 4. Copy,
2: Stoker 4.
0: Sarge, we've brought
8: the suspect inside the graveyard. I know you're not going to want to hear this, but
2: we're going to need backup. What? What? VKG? Stoker 4? Avis? Jonesy?
10: and stress is overpassed. if tenderness and truth could last or live whilst all while feelings keep some mortal slumber dark and deep I shouldn't weep I shouldn't were enough to feel to see your soft eyes gaze at me and dream the rest and burn and be the secret food of fires unseen I should not weep I should not
0: To the Bohemian Beat And that was Guyanne and Simon With I Should Not Weep Based on a poem by Percy B. Shelley And before that, episode one of the radio play Grooming, written and produced by Paul Goodwin Starring Suze as woman Yasser as Constable Mal Jones Lydia as Senior Constable Mavis Brady Paul as Sergeant Frank Lawson And me as Inspector Kath Campbell special thanks to OMCA and SAE Byron Bay for the audio recording and use of the studio space. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, because we certainly did, and there'll be more to come in the following weeks. We have run out of time. The Bohemian Beat will be back next week. Same beat time, same Bohemian frequency for more poetic adventures into the theatre of your mind. Check out the website, thebohemianbeat.com for more information and podcasts. We will end with a track by Pale 3, Fly With Me. Thank you for joining me, Biddy, on the Bohemian Beat. Don't don't fly don't fly don't fly don't fly don't
9: fly don't don't you fly fly don't don't fly don't fly don't fly don't fly don't fly don't fly don't you fly you're my hero you say you're my hope you say I'm your princess your empress your dope. I say I am worried I say you might lie and if you don't trust me there's nowhere to fly why don't you believe me why don't you give up Why won't you read? Brown. I should feel pretty.